Welcome to Data Remediations, a podcast connecting environmental data with people and places through stories and art. It was a week that I made all this noise. It was made around five after eight. eight. I heard like all these air hammers, like, you know, I said, what are they doing? You know, like they were pile driving. So my dog was like going crazy. And I said, what is this noise? So I got dressed, you know, and I went right around in by Gibson Place right out here. And happened to see these guys, they was out there and they were doing some survey. And I said, what are you doing? But they said, well, you know, they're supposed to be building some houses out here. That was Leonard Stewart, a longtime Philadelphia resident and member of the Eastwick Friends and Neighbors Coalition. In this episode of Data Remediations, we'll hear stories from Leonard and other Philadelphians about the local environmental challenges we're facing. On the pod, we talk about how in Eastwick, they were able to win a battle against unwanted real estate development. That might be development in air quotes. (laughs) Good catch, Patricia. The neighborhood is called Eastwick, and it's on the front lines of sea level rise, even though Philadelphia is some 50 miles up the Delaware from the open ocean. It's a real story of David and Goliath. Or how a coalition of the little guys and gals can take on industry and win. Welcome Welcome to to Data Data Remediations, episode Episode 3. Third time's a charm. So actually, we're making two parts for this third installment. I'm Bethany Wigan, and I direct the Program in Environmental Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia. And I'm Patricia Kim. I'm in my last semester, the last couple of months actually, of my PhD program here in art history at the University of Pennsylvania. Patricia's moving to New York. Yes, I am. We're more recent arrivals to Philadelphia than the longtime residents that we talk to on the show. For a couple of years now, we've been working with our Philadelphia neighbors who have a deeper knowledge about this city we live in. We'll feature their stories about how they paired accounts of their lived experiences and the ground truths together with scientific data and model truths to advocate for a better future. In our last episode, that was episode two, yes, we talked to experts who work with different kinds of data, bad data, big data, poor data, work in progress data, and so on. And we learned more about concepts like data poverty and data love and what they mean for our communities. In episode three, we'll learn about ground truths and how they connect model truths with people and places. Future episodes will also feature the ground truths of communities and cities like Los Angeles, Houston, Minneapolis, and so on. If model truths are the graphs, quants, and computer models that predict larger-scale climate changes, what are ground truths? What's happening on the ground in our city's neighborhoods? Oh, and what's happening on the water? And do we even have the data to answer these questions? Hmm. So this episode's two parts, both filled with Philadelphia stories that feature our academics, artists, and activists who have collectively addressed the challenges of data poverty and uncertain futures through ground truthing. In part one, we'll hear a little more from our city's sustainability director, Christine Knapp, who we talked to in episode two, 
Oh, and you talked to uh, Rod, Rod Cooper. Cooper. Yes, I did. Who's a Philadelphia-based artist working on issues around the environment and rising waters. We also talked to Indigenous scholar and journalist Candace Callison. And we'll hear a lot more, too, from our Eastwick community partners, including Leonard Stewart and Margie Cobb and her sister Nancy. So let's get started. Let's get started. Eastwick is a vibrant, diverse neighborhood in southwest Philadelphia. Historically, it's home to the vast Tinicum Marsh, and its remaining wetlands are preserved today in the John Hines National Wildlife Refuge. Neighbors have told us about how they treasure their encounters with wild turkeys, as well as the many migratory birds who stop over in Eastwick and the refuge and all along the Delaware on their way up and down the Atlantic Flyway. But as in many American coastal communities, water poses a triple threat to Eastwick. Its rivers and many historic creeks are flooding more often. Many of their surfaces are impenetrable, and so the water has nowhere to go. And finally, there's sea level rise. The Tinicum Marsh has always been wet, but in Eastwick, like in many other coastal communities, it's getting a lot wetter. And everybody was telling me, we're flooding. Get inside, turn off your electricity, and then get out. So that's what I did. And when I was heading out my front door, I could hear all of my furniture in the basement hidden because the water was coming in from the back of the house and the front of the house. Margie and her sister Nancy spoke with us about their experiences during 1999's Hurricane Floyd. It hit all the coastal areas of the eastern United States, and Eastwick was some four to five feet deep in water. Since Hurricane Floyd, a large group of Eastwick residents have been working to understand the futures of their neighborhoods, especially in the era of sea level rise. Our student public research interns help us understand this episode's key concept, ground-truthing. Hi, I'm Grace Burrows. And I'm Katie Collier. We're the public research interns for Data Refuge. We talked with scholar Candace Callison when she spoke as part of our lecture series, Data at Risk. You really have to go where people want to tell their story, right? You can't push in and try to say, well, this is important. Callison explores ground truthing in her book, How Climate Change Comes to Matter, The Communal Life of Facts. Oxford English Dictionary defines what it means to ground truth, to confirm or validate by direct observation on the ground, rather than by interpretation of remotely obtained data. Ground truthing sounds so simple, but listen as Eastwick resident Margie Cobb talks about how difficult it can be especially when the ground is shifting under our feet, getting really wet. So I made it to my car, just as the flood water was coming up 78th Street, and then I headed to Mom. She's on Vermeer Place, so she's at 82nd and Vermeer. So I thought it couldn't get any farther. And I just happened to look out the door, and it was on her street. I said, Mom, we have to get out of here. Another neighbor said, where are you going? I said, I don't know, but we're getting out of here. In an era of not knowing, how do we deal with uncertainty when the ground is soggy? 
Philly-based artist Roderick Coover's work has long focused on different modes of sensing data in watery places, especially with so many unknowns. And when reliable data is missing or when existing historical data isn't helpful. And when I moved to Philadelphia in 2004, I started kayaking uh, along the Delaware frequently and uh, began a project filming and photographing a lot of the post-industrial sites along the river, the brown fields, the abandoned factories, and also some of the more active sites, sites that are partially out of use, refineries that have popped up next to old refineries, things like that. I was struck by the potential impact of floods and rising waters and what that would do to this landscape with all of its toxic residue. As we learned in episode two, cities across America, including Philly, have worked really hard to produce, to maintain, and to use various model truths. Christine Knapp, Philly's Director of Sustainability, describes some of the models and digital assets that help everyday people, like you and me. So the climate projections are clearly for everybody because it's the citywide projections that shows the heat. A current heat map and then tells us what, how much hotter it's going to get. And then it shows sea level rise and sea level rise with storm surge, which so you can see whole parts of Philadelphia that would be affected. We took that and then applied it to the city's own buildings, assets, infrastructure, operations to some degree as well, and then went department by department to find sort of, you know, low-hanging fruit actions that departments could be taking to protect themselves from these sources, you know, these threats that we know are coming. But as we heard from the activists of the EFNC, the shape of future threats remains murky with the increasing frequency of nuisance flooding in their homes and on their streets. It's interesting because scientists are now also in the last 20 years really interested in hearing these stories and recognizing them as a form of data. In October of last year, the IPCC released a special report on 1.5 degrees of warming. It was a sobering report, to say the least. Some people said they could hear the authors screaming between the lines. Its authors also urged the need to include more ground truths in global warming reports. Here's what they wrote. Education, information, and community approaches, including those informed by indigenous knowledge and local knowledge, can accelerate the wide-scale behavior changes consistent with adapting to and limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Just in case you want to track down that key sentence, Google IPCC Special Report. It's in the Executive Summary, Section D, Part 5.6. Here's how Callison explains it. These sorts of sensibilities, when you live close to an area, you recognize these minute changes. And I think we need more of those, right? (laughs) We need more kind of conversations between people who are really living it and scientific studies. I think that's happening. Candace knows this from her own fieldwork with evangelical Christian communities, American businesses, and her own lived experiences. She hails from the Taltan community, a First Nations tribe from what is now British Columbia. 
There are all these communities in which there are indigenous experts who have been observing for decades and who have oral histories that stretch back many other decades, right? And and who have, you know, very interesting analyses about what they think is, you know, happening in the world. And they often do also read scientific reports and are aware of what's happening in the region more broadly. Back to Philadelphia Stories. In 2012, Leonard was one of two residents that noticed something different in his neighborhood. So I got dressed, you know, and I went right around in by Gibson Place right out here and happened to see these guys. They was out there and they were doing some survey. And I said, what are you doing? And they said, well, you know, they're supposed to be building some houses out here. And I said, well, who's building them? So they said it's either going to be Westrom or Corman. The surveyors were sponsored by Corman Residential, who had made plans with the city of Philly to build apartment complexes in the lot at 84th Street and Lindbergh Boulevard near the John Hines National Wildlife Refuge. But how did Corman get the rights to develop the area in the first place? For that, we're going to take a little time travel back to 1954, when the city decided to declare eminent domain through the Eastwick Redevelopment Area Plan. And that's development in air quotes again. You know, the city of Philadelphia came in and they, what an eminent domain, they gave us a price for it, yeah. uh, but they took the property and then that's how Corman became okay. the developer. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be a city within a city. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happened was It wasn't intended for really black people to move back there. In the 1950s, federal housing surveys noted the racial diversity of Eastwick, counting 2,188 white families and 1,127 non-white families. Their new 1954 plan uniquely intended for the redeveloped Eastwick to be racially integrated. Nonetheless, the plan displaced over 8,000 residents breaking up the community. You can learn more about the history of urban renewal by visiting schoolkillcore.org. Back then, Eastwick had issues with flooding, too. The city and private developers started to raise the area's elevation by adding 11 million cubic yards of fill dredged from the Schuylkill River. Corman had been developing in the area throughout the 1970s and 80s. Fast forward to 2012, when Leonard and his dog discovered the surveyors around his house. The EFNC, that is the Eastwick Friends and Neighbors Coalition, utilized federal flood data and digital assets to improve, or in this case prevent, consequences of the development project proposed by Corman, whose holdings stretch across the United States. I didn't know about you know, what kind of risk we are. And I didn't know how, you know, how low we are as far as sea level. And when we met with a lot of the environmentalists and hydrologists, they was explaining to us about this community, you know, how fragile the environment is, you know. And they showed us the data about these different pockets in there, in here, about, you know, how fragile it is, you know, and how some areas are just at sea level, some are below sea level. And, you know, all the data shows about how any major storm, a lot of times, we would be impacted by that. We shall not be moved. 
Eastwick lies in a 100-year floodplain. In other words, the neighborhood historically has a 1% risk of flooding every year. But now, in our era of sea level rise and global warming, that percent likelihood is rising higher too. At the same time that Eastwick is an important migratory site for birds and a refuge for humans, it, like many other wetlands, has sometimes been treated as wasteland. At least since the 19th century, Eastwick's wetlands have been used as waste sinks, sometimes legally and sometimes not. Today, Eastwick is a self-identified environmental justice community, and it's home to two Superfund sites. Rising waters and soggy lands are matters of very serious public safety and health. The, the data we had, it, that's one of the, our main arguments for them not building apartments. It was through existing data sets, as Leonard explains, that the community was able to succeed in preventing the development project, which would have negatively affected the entire neighborhood. We went to City Hall and we bought some geologists, you know, from, from Washington, D.C., and that's when we found out how we was in a major floodplain and how building those apartments would, would actually exasperate flooding in this community. And then the city was trying to put their spin on, you know, the water department said, well, we think it could be handled right. And so a lot of people got up there and talked about how much had been flooding in Eastwick. And one fella said, yeah, whenever, whenever we have heavy rains, I got to go lift up the drains and make sure, you know, that they're cleaned out. And this was the neighbors out here were doing themselves. Eastwick residents gave their own testimonies, or ground truths, to the city of Philadelphia. And in connection with model truths, they were able to convince the city to block development in the historic wetlands. Leonard says that the city's water department claimed they weren't aware of chronic flooding issues in Eastwick. So how were the neighbors able to advocate for themselves? You always got to form a coalition because you can't do things on your own. Because some of the people in the community say, oh, we don't need those outsiders. You know, we don't need these. We don't need some Caucasians, and some environmentalists to tell us what to do. I said, oh, yes, you do. You can't fight any battle on your own. I said, you got to have coalition. You got to have building blocks. You got to reach out. I said, when we went to City Hall, we had over 100 some people. They didn't think that we was going to bring expert witnesses from Washington. We had Michael Nairn. We had people, you know, from University of Penn. I mean, we came, we did our homework. The Eastwick Friends and Neighbors Coalition president, Earl Wilson, tells us about the power of bringing ground truths together with model truths. We, we practically forced a multi-million dollar corporation you met a threat of Tacoma, okay, to, in a sense, relinquish. We rallied with the city, state, and all the so-called powerhouse entities in trying to get Tacoma to see that it would be to their advantage not to take advantage of that undeveloped area. Thanks to the availability of good flood data from FEMA, Eastwick residents were able to convince their representatives that any development of the land could be disastrous. But what if that data doesn't exist? What happens when there are too many roadblocks? 
One Philadelphia-based atmospheric chemist, Peter DiCarlo, has dedicated some of his research as the head of Drexel's Air Resources Research Laboratory to produce good emissions and air quality data currently missing from public knowledge. Although we heard a little bit from artist Roderick Cooper, we'll talk to him again in part two to learn about his multimodal practice of sensing data and speculating unknown futures with rising waters. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. See you in part two.